Do you want to maximize your success with NCUA? Join Mark Trichel as he shares with you the insider's view on passing your exam with Flying Colors. The With Flying Colors podcast is sponsored by Credit Union Exam Solutions by Mark Trichel. If you would like to work directly with the Credit Union Exam Solutions team and receive support to optimize your results with NCUA so you save time and money, visit us at marktrichel.com to find out more. Hey, everyone. This is Mark Trichel with another episode of With Flying Colors. It is being recorded here at 2.48 on March 22nd. And I've got a couple of American Banker articles I want to reference, a couple of Wall Street Journal articles I want to reference. But first, the Fed raised rates 25 basis points, which is what was predicted by many. And it'll be interesting to see what where they go from there. They're battling trying to control inflation, but also trying to not create any more havoc in banks with underwater, substantially underwater investments, coupled with huge balances of uninsured shares. And some people are predicting that they'll pause at this 25 basis points and not do much in the short term. Time will tell. Hopefully, inflation will cooperate. I just went into my personal Schwab account where I check what CD rates they are showing, and they do not appear to have changed much, if at all. But on Schwab, they are showing one-year CDs at 5.35%, nine-month are at 5.23, 18-month are less than the one-year by uh, 10 basis points down to five and a quarter. The two-year is at 5.05. I had seen these as high as 5.40 a couple weeks back, and so things seem to be actually coming down a little bit on the CD front. But I'm sure you have your own challenges in determining what your rates would be and are probably not quite as high as what the top end is showing here on Schwab. There was an article yesterday in American Banker titled Recession Fears, Cecil Drive Up Loan Loss Provision by Ken McCarthy of American Banker. Candy reached out to me and he quoted me here in his article, but his article states that credit unions are bracing for a potential recession combined with the long-awaited implementation of a new accounting standard has caused loan loss provisions to skyrocket. Recently released data from NCUA showed the provision for loan loss lease losses or credit loss expense rose by 337% year over year in the fourth quarter. By comparison, it declined by 86% to 1.2 billion in 2021. By the way, I think that decline in 2021 was the result of credit unions juicing it so much, thinking COVID losses were going to be coming through in 2020. They didn't happen. So that led to the decrease in 2021, followed by Cecil in preparation for Cecil and the economic issues that credit unions are facing. But all in all, you know, the statistics are still really good in credit unions. The article goes on to say preparation for possible deterioration in asset quality is understandable given multiple Federal Reserve interest rate hikes. And many economists' recessions predictions, said Peter Duffy, managing director of Piper Sandler. The recent failure of Silicon Valley Bank in California and Signature Bank raised concerns about the financial system and amplified recession concerns. So my thoughts were delinquency numbers look good across the industry. So the bulking of provisions is likely a sign of credit unions putting money away for a rainy day, said Mark Treichel, a former NCUA executive director who now runs credit union exam solutions. The delinquency rate at federally insured credit unions was 61 basis points in the fourth quarter 
up 12 basis points compared with the fourth quarter. Also, earnings could be more strained in 2023, so it's better to get ahead of it, Trichel said. Another factor at play is the financialist accounting standard board's accounting standard on current expected credit losses, or CECL, which went into effect for most credit unions at the start of the year. Editorial comment, while it went in play at the start of the year, it's not really getting booked required-wise until this first quarter, although some credit unions, in my opinion, did get a jump on it, and some of my clients have indicated that's what they have going on. All right. One other American Banker article I wanted to refer to is M&A outlooks get bleaker in wake of bank failures. And this relates to banks, but I'll have a comment regarding credit unions. After bank merger and acquisition activity slowed substantially in 2022, it could reach a standstill following the failures of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. The sudden demise of the two banks, coupled with the self-liquidation of Silvergate Bank in California, injected heavy doses of uncertainty into the financial system and raised doubts about the veracity of regulatory oversight. The $209 billion asset, Silicon Valley Bank's reliance on deposits from risky technology startups brought it down, while the $110 billion asset signature and the $11 billion Silvergate tumbled following forays into the dubious cryptocurrency market. Regulators missed the extent of those vulnerabilities and the aftermath of the collapses. Observers say bank supervisors are likely to further ramp up reviews of banks' potential weaknesses to compensate. This likely will extend to bank M&A, including previously announced deals that are awaiting regulatory approval. Anytime there is a failure or perceived problem in the system, a weakness in the banking sector's armor, if you will, the scrutiny level gets ratcheted up. He added, the vast majority of banks in the U.S., including community lenders, have little to no exposure to cryptocurrency or Silicon Valley startups. But when people get nervous about the overall banking system, that almost always seems to worry regulators and approvals get slower and slower. All right. Well, so mergers in banks get slowed down. But one of the challenges is when bank stocks get hit, the mergers in banks and the acquisition of one bank by another are usually paid in stock. So with stock prices depressed, that requires more stock to be paid to effect the merger. Now, one of the advantages credit unions have when requiring banks is credit unions acquire with cash. The credit unions, I don't necessarily think credit union mergers will slow. And I think bank purchases by credit unions are still a very opportune situation. So credit unions, I think good, healthy credit unions looking to acquire good, healthy banks, I think that could be something that actually grows in 2023 and 2024, although potentially regulators at NCUA may be a little bit more, give it a little bit more scrutiny, just as the American banker is suggesting may happen in banks. And another interesting American banker article, the federal home loan bank system issued $304 billion in debt last week, double the amount of liquidity that banks have sought from the Federal Reserve discount window and a new funding program. The $1.25 trillion asset home loan bank system has become the go-to source of cash for regional and community banks looking for liquidity, by the way, also for credit unions. Last week, the home loan banks collectively issued $304 billion in discount notes and bonds to meet member demand and to maintain liquidity for the 11 regional banks themselves. The system was created during the Depression to fund home loans and is owned by its 6,500 members, including banks, insurance 
companies, and credit unions. The system's issuance dropped dramatically from $111 billion issued on Monday, the largest single day of issuance in the home loan bank's 90-year history, to $21 billion on Friday. The private cooperative of 11 regional banks, which is structured as a government-sponsored enterprise, issued bonds that are backed by an implied government guarantee. The total debt issued last week included $151 billion in longer-term bonds, $143 billion in notes that mature in less than a year, and another $10 billion in discount notes. The, Fed, the Fed's bank term funding program is serving as a supplement to the central bank's discount window, its standard last resort lending facility. Last week, banks received $152 billion through the Fed's discount window and $11 billion from the bank term funding program, according to the Fed. So $11.9 billion, $12 billion from the bank term funding, $152 billion from the Fed's discount window, and $304 billion from the Federal Home Loan Bank. So you can see the Federal Home Loan Bank is about three times what's being accessed through the Fed. The Federal Home Loan Banks probably are providing a service in these times, but I don't think they were created for that purpose, nor do I feel they are adequately coordinated by the Federal Reserve and Treasury in carrying out that purpose, said Stephen Cross, a financial industry advisor, former deputy director of the Federal Housing Finance Agency and former bank regulator. The federal home loan banks are acting as the system's liquidity backstop, and I believe that's outside of their core mission, and it should be the responsibility of the Treasury and the Federal Reserve and FDIC. Last year, the Federal Housing Financial Agency launched the first major review of the system in 90 years. Critics contend the home loan banks are operating as a lender of next to last resort. I think they've got a typo here. It says lender of last report, but next to last lender of last resort. Or as a shadow central bank that advances far exceeding borrowings from the federal's discount window and the new bank term funding program. We cannot afford the luxury of having two central banks, let alone the confusion of having two, said Cornelius Hurley, a lecturer at Boston University's School of Law, who served for 14 years on the board of the Federal Home Loan Bank of Boston. Hurley, who was among the system's harshest critics, he said the home loan bank's mission was never meant to be a central bank for privately owned banks. All right, so much debate about what the Federal Home Loan Bank's charter says it should be and what it actually is. I would say it provides great liquidity for the credit union industry and for banks. The Federal Home Loan Bank via banks via FHFA are being studied as to what their future charter should be. But as has been seen during this crisis, they played a pretty valuable role in providing liquidity along with what the Fed can do under their two programs. So all in all, I think the Federal Home Loan Bank is one of the best options for credit unions who need liquidity, although it'll be interesting to see what kind of self-audit they provide. I'm not expecting much change. And again, the system proved that it worked over this last crisis, and I think the Fed probably appreciates its assistance in providing liquidity to the United States financial system. There's also an interesting opinion editorial in the Wall Street Journal called The End of Market Discipline for Banks by the editorial board. And it states that financial regulators have ignored their post-2008 rule book to contain the latest banking panic. 
And on Tuesday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen tore it up, announcing a de facto guarantee of all $17.6 trillion in U.S. bank deposits. Regional bank stocks rallied, but it's important to understand what this moment means. The end of market discipline in U.S. banking. I've had some, by the way, editorial comment. I've had some of my friends and clients and other acquaintances in the credit union industry say just the exact same thing. So going forward in the article, our intervention was necessary to protect the broad U.S. banking system, Yellen told the ABA convention, and similar actions could be warranted if smaller institutions suffer deposit runs that pose the risk of contagion. Translation, depositors needn't worry about the safety and soundness of banks. Uncle Sam will make sure you don't lose money. This isn't an explicit guarantee, but it's close enough for government work. Dodd-Frank lets the FDIC guarantee uninsured deposits under its systemic risk exception. But banks must fail for the exception to apply, and the systemic risk is supposed to be genuine. Regulators stretched that exception with SVB and Signature, and the Treasury Secretary is now making clear that they will stretch it again to prevent more bank runs on her watch. Ms. Yellen would court criticism in Congress if she straight up declared a guarantee for all uninsured deposits, but it's now clearly implied. So she, this is editorial comment on the editorial comment, and she is walking a very fine line. As I said in one of my first podcasts on these topics, staff cannot say that there's a guarantee above $250,000 because that's Congress. Congress set the limit at that. They do have this loophole if they get approval of the Fed, if they get approval of the Treasury, if they get approval of the FDIC and supermajorities and then get a, a nod from the president that they can say it's a systemic issue and they can guarantee it for an individual institution. But they're implying that they will do that so that everyone remains calm. You could argue whether or not that is what was intended, but they're clearly walking a very fine line. And I think she's on the right side of the line, while I don't necessarily agree that they've thought about all the ramifications of this. Again, on the article, but why does she feel the need to provide this assurance if the situation is stabilizing and the U.S. banking system remains sound? As she claimed, perhaps because bank depositors and investors fear the trouble in banks is wider than she claims. The stable financial system requires clear and transparent capital standards, sound regulation, and above all, market discipline to punish reckless behavior. Totally agree with that. If there is no market discipline, everybody can do whatever they want and the government will come and bail them out. So ultimately that puts more pressure on bank examiners, credit union examiners, and gives the ability theoretically for institutions to throw caution to the wind. And of course, you and I know that when the examiners come in, they will double down on this or at least issue some document resolutions, examiner findings and downgrade camel codes to try and maintain control. Control that didn't happen at SVB and at Signature Bank. Risk-weighted capital standards have made banks look healthier than they are. The Dodd-Frank regulatory architecture failed to protect against the interest rate risk that landed Silicon Valley Bank Signature and First Republic banks in trouble. Market discipline fell sharply with the creation of two big to fail banks as part of Dodd Frank. Now Ms. Yellen is throwing out residual discipline by telling even uninsured depositors that they need not worry. 
editorial comment. Now, if you listened to my podcast yesterday, the Oklahoma senator, whose name escapes me, took on Yellen very aggressively and very eloquently, basically saying deposits are moving from small community banks to the large, too big to fail because Yellen has implied and the Fed has implied and Treasury has implied and FDIC has implied that if you are in a too big to fail bank that you will get this coverage. Now, Yellen's statements at the ABA yesterday was talking about smaller institutions, perhaps as a hat tip to what happened in Congress where they were beating her up, if you will, relative to smaller institutions, uninsured deposits possibly not being covered. Senator Elizabeth Warren said no one should expect small businesses with more than $250,000 in cash to be savvy enough to know the difference between a well and poorly run bank, so deposits should be guaranteed. The one exception I might draw is that is the billion-dollar depositor. Of course, that's Warren historically goes after billionaires, and of course, she had to have a carve-out for billionaires. But but, but most mom-and-pop businesses don't have more than $250,000 sitting in the bank. The small businesses she's referring to are hedge funds, venture, and law firms, and well-funded startups. Many VCs didn't do due diligence before parking money at Silicon Valley Bank, but it's not unreasonable to expect that they should. Letting uninsured depositors at SVB and Signature take a modest haircut would have provided useful market discipline. As Todd Miller of my team says, that would serve as their tuition cost, but they've taken away that tuition cost. The administration is doing the opposite. It's creating moral hazard that will seed future trouble by encouraging more risky behavior by bank management and reducing caution among depositors, investors, and creditors. The administration is presenting its intervention as a one-off, but once regulators do something, they create the market expectation that they will do it again. Agree with that. Do for one, do for all is one of the things I, one of the principles I I lived with as the executive director at NCUA. And of course, there's case-by-case situations and there's fact-based decisions, but they did open a bit of a Pandora's box by taking this action. How they'll get the cover back on or what laws they'll change, I don't know, but something definitely will change moving forward. And if they don't, the ensuing market panic will invariably impel them. Biden officials are crossing a Rubicon here, and they're doing it essentially by fiat without approval by Congress. So that's, again, a subtle nuance. Congress did give them broad authorities that if there was going to be contagion and systemic risk that they could act. What they're saying here in this article is that they are implying that they will continue to act to create calm. I would argue that that, in my opinion, that those rules are there so they have that flexibility to imply that people should remain calm, but it's a very slippery slope, and I I get the point that they're making here. Last paragraph of the article, regulators have become all too accustomed to doing anything they want during a market panic, reaching for extraordinary power even in non-emergencies. Ms. Yellen may have shored up confidence in mid-sized banks, but the cost of her guarantees will be a less sound and safe U.S. banking system. Very interesting article there. A lot to unpack. I'm going to need to think about this a little bit more. I think it's a little bit of an overreach by the opinion office at the Wall Street Journal relative to them not following the rules and going beyond congressional intent. But the acts that they have 
taken, in my opinion, will drive Congress to get involved. All right. Well, a lot going on. As I've said, I've been recording more podcasts recently, getting a little hoarse with my voice here. And I'm going to wrap this up. But on a on a funny note, there's also a, a Wall Street Journal article uh, on Taylor Swift and her concerts. The headline reads, Taylor Swift fans prepare wardrobe, hydration strategies for marathon length shows. The pop star's Tour spans 44 songs over three hours. If Taylor doesn't need a bathroom break, then neither do I. If Taylor doesn't need a bathroom break, then neither do I. That's all I've got on Taylor Swift. Oh, well, I got one more thing on Taylor Swift as I wrap up. My daughter is a huge Taylor Swift fan. We took her to two concerts back when she was in high school. We attended as well. And she does put on quite a show. A three-hour show is pretty cool. It used to be only the Rolling Stones. And that's all I've got for you today. Taylor Swift is a good place to end on Wall Street Journal. And a summary of this week's news, this is Mark Treichel signing off with Flying Colors. Thank you for joining us on this episode of With Flying Colors. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to hear future episodes where subject matter experts of all varieties will provide tips on how to achieve success with NCUA. If you would like to learn more about how we assist credit unions, check out our services at marktreichel.com. 